Well, good morning, everyone. This is JB with NBW Ministries, proclaiming, as always, the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky, tucked away under the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us. So today is Tuesday, December 5th, and I'm, I'm so delighted, December 5th, 2023, by the way, and unbelievable how quickly this year has gone. Uh, we're rapidly approaching uh, flipping the page on the calendar to a new year, and what a year 2024 is going to be. I can't wait to to get into that election year, we got the Trump uh, trials, we've got the, all of the stuff that the Luciferian elite have been talking about rolling out in the coming year. Going to be quite an exciting time and a time for believers to fix their eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm really excited about our guest on the program today, first time guest, but long time friend. And one of our goals as we uh, do these podcasts each day is to try to introduce the NBW family to some folks that you may or may not uh, have heard of. I imagine some of you have heard of Jeremy Thomas, but he's the pastor at Spokane Bible Church. He's also a professor, teacher, author, uh, just a dear friend. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a moment, uh, but can't wait to just pick his brain a little bit, hear a little bit more about his journey. And I know one of the courses that he teaches at Schaefer Seminary is on Israelology and dispensationalism and those topics that are near and dear uh, to my heart. So we'll bring Jeremy on in just a moment. A couple of quick announcements as we uh, uh, remind you of a few things. First of all, if you haven't had a chance yet uh, to check out the uh, recent podcast, you need to go back and, and do some catch up. Uh, as always, we've got some great guests talking about some pretty uh, cutting edge stuff and current events. Uh, we've had Pat Wood on to talk about technocracy and uh, transhumanism and uh, just such a great, great guy. So thankful the Lord allowed our paths uh, to cross. I had cited him extensively in my new book. And then uh, because of that, uh, mutual friends allowed us to connect. And he's just been a blessing in my life. But uh, we've got uh, my uh, podcast recently on reasons for the Christian to do good works. We had um, uh, David Fiorazzo on talking about his new book. Uh, we had uh, Brett Nasworth on, talking about the gospel, global elites, and the next generation. So lots of good stuff out there for you. We are uh, looking ahead to a busy week this week. Of course, I'll be in uh, Dallas for the pre-trib conference uh, by the time you hear this uh, podcast on uh, Tuesday, December the 5th. Uh, and we've got some uh, upcoming family trips. Christmas is right around the corner. So we're trying to queue up a lot of great podcasts, and I know you're going to be blessed uh, by that. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter yet, go to notbyworks.org, and we send out a newsletter on Tuesdays and Saturdays with links to all of our new content and some featured resources. Uh, check out our online store as well, and while you're there, pick up all of the free resources. We have a free resources section at the Not By Work store, and uh, you can download them all, or you can just pick and choose which ones you want, uh, no limit. You don't need a credit card. It'll email the PDFs right uh, to you. And while you're there, check out our merchandise page. We're, we're so delighted to partner with our good friends at Red Pill Prints, and we have all kinds of merchandise, hats, caps, stockings. I just got recently an NBW uh, stocking cap that I wear when I'm out plowing the driveway here in Colorado. And uh, the one I had been using for years, literally uh, been around for probably 20 years. It's been in my garage. Uh, I finally decided it was time to lay that to rest and get a new one. And so, of course, I got an NBW one from Red Pill Prince. But there's a link right at 
the Not By Works store. Uh, coats, uh, or, uh, jerseys, sweatshirts, T-shirts, long sleeve T-shirts, caps, stocking caps, cups, coffee mugs, water bottles, you name it. And as always, when folks see NBW Ministries, they're going to ask, what in the world is that? And you can tell them, well, it's a ministry committed to reminding people that salvation is not by works, Titus 3, 5. So it's a great opportunity to share the gospel. You can pick up some gospel tracks from our online store, books, streaming video, all kinds of other resources. By the way, that Red Pill uh, NBW merchandise makes a great Christmas gift uh, as well. Uh, so just really excited to have uh, Jeremy Thomas on today. We're going to talk a lot about the gospel, but uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, and welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, JB, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So I'm trying to remember when we first met. I think it's when we were both speaking at a conference up in Duluth, Minnesota, and we were staying in the same host house, I believe. I, it's certainly a, a memory that sticks in my mind. It may not have been the first time we met, but it was certainly one of the earlier times. And I remember we stayed up that night late till in the wee hours of the morning just talking about all things uh, biblical, theological, and just uh, really it was a great discussion. But uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, uh, by way of introduction, you're the pastor at Spokane Bible Church in Spokane, Washington, and you also are an adjunct professor at uh, Chafer Seminary. Uh, you're an author. Uh, you're one of the contributors to the brand new book that I highly recommend. I want everybody to go right now to Amazon and, and get this so you can get it before Christmas, but it's a compendium of devotionals uh, uh, called Caroling to Christmas caroling to christmas and many of the contributors uh are folks that uh that i know in fact almost all of them uh i know and vouch for and highly respect um but it's uh you've got some devotionals in here it's edited by our mutual friend brad maston and dane rogers but anyway it's called caroling to christmas a christmas devotional of carols hymns and songs and they can get that at amazon.com but Jeremy, give us a little bit of your background and how you came to faith and how you got into ministry. Well, um, well, that started a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, my family was a Christian, so I was raised in a Christian home, and well, I didn't become a believer till I was eight years old, which is probably fairly common Christian home. But it, you know, the, the events that surrounded it were the passing away of my uncle Marvin, and you know, questions about where is Uncle Marvin that type of thing. I, I still remember wanting to be with Uncle Marvin and hmm. talking to my dad that day. And and he, he walked me through some scriptures and he was using the Roman roads. I, I, would, I wouldn't say use the Roman road, but <laughs> some of those verses perhaps are not interpreted correctly. But still through that, I realized that, you know, Christ had paid the penalty for my Uncle Marvin's sin, for my sin. And all I had to do was just believe in him and I would receive eternal life. And so I, I became a believer when I was eight, and but most of my younger years were basically just interested in playing soccer. <laughs> you know, we went to Baptist churches, we went to Assemblies of God. We I saw book burnings. I've I've been through a lot in the background. Wait, uh, wait, growing up. book burnings. You can't just throw that in without <laughs> some clarification. Tell us about the book burnings. By the way, where did you grow up? What part of the country? Uh, well, Austin, and then Paris, Texas. 
Austin and Harris. I just got back from East Texas, actually. It was in Tyler. Know that area well. So uh, the whole 69 corridor, what used to be the 59 corridor, now it's the 69 corridor. So you were you were in, involved with uh, the Nazis how? Or no, I mean the book, <laughs> book burnings how, did you say? <laughs> well, it was just part of a, a church, and I didn't know what was going on. I was a kid, you know, but yeah. I just remember going out there and, you know, getting some heat by all the books that were burning. <laughs> so these One must night. have been books of, of a questionable nature that the, the, the youth yes. group or youth pastor was probably trying to encourage all the teenagers and college students, <laughs> get rid of these books. I, I did a similar thing in, in high school with uh, CDs. And for some of our younger listeners, a CD is how you used to listen to music. Actually, I can go back to eight track days. But uh, yeah, I can remember burning some of our secular CDs. But uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. So it was mostly about, you know, soccer. and I mean, that was my life. And uh, I eventually went off to uh, Central College in the center of the country. It's literally at the center of the country, McPherson, Kansas, hmm. and uh, played soccer there for a couple of years. And then went home, and my parents basically said, hey, what are you doing here? You're 20 or 21 years old now. You need to get out of here. So I went to uh, Texas Tech University out in Lubbock, and I – I basically walked with the wrong crowd, even though I was a Christian and got in some trouble. Uh, but eventually, you know, I decided, you know, when all my friends kind of graduated, I was the youngster in the group. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I don't, I don't want to have this lifestyle. And so I, I uh, basically enmeshed myself in studies and I just got involved in biology and chemistry. And I decided I wanted to be a doctor because other people said that's what you'll be good at. And so uh, I just went that direction. That was my escape from, you know, loose living, let's say. But uh, then my brother came, and then I met this, this I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. Hmm. And um, that's when I was about to graduate, and I met the lady who would be my wife. And she's just a totally, she was just a totally different girl from anyone I'd ever met. And... So the long story short, at this time, I'm basically a Christian who's an evolutionist who's thinking about going into the medical field, and I meet her, and she, her family had been trained doctrinally under uh, Charlie Clough in the 70s, and her dad had, you know, instilled all these truths in her and her siblings, and, you know, through all that, I started studying and became a young earth creationist and realizing all the fallacies and presuppositions and the scientific arguments that uh, were really without foundation. And so it was, I was just, I was so excited. I just, all I wanted to do was study and learn. I just listened to audio tapes, remember cassettes, you know, you talk about <laughs> yeah. these other forms of listening to music. I would just listen to doctrinal teachings for hours on end, even when I worked. You know, if I'm just sitting in a lab, I started working as a plant, in plant physiology. So I had hours where I was just running experiments and so forth. So I could listen to doctrine all day long. Hmm. Went to seminary, and um, I had already taken my MCATs, but I decided that, you know, I didn't want to do that because essentially when I tried to get a recommendation letter from one of the professors at Texas Tech, who had been a professor at Notre Dame, and his background was in Roman Catholicism. He had been in a specific, like a Franciscan monk at one point in his mm -hmm. life in the 70s, and he wrote he wrote a lot of stuff on religion and science in, in California. 
in the 70s. But this guy was kind of really well known at Tech, and I wanted his recommendation letter. But when he asked me, he said, you have to have passed three criteria to get this recommendation letter. And one of them was you have to have really good, good grades. And I had all A's in all the courses I took from him. The second one was you ha I have to know you so I can you know, say something positive about your character. And I taught labs and things like that as undergrad for him. So he knew me well, and that was no problem. But he said the third question was, or criteria was, how do you think the human species originated? Mm. And and I said, well, I think that God created man. And he said, I can't give you a recommendation letter. Wow. And so. Well, good for you, I, though. I mean, you know, <laughs> just standing on your convictions. Uh, by the way, if you just join us, we're talking with Jeremy Thomas, pastor at Spokane Bible Church. And he's just telling a little bit about his a journey. So he was at Texas Tech, uh, wanting to get a recommendation letter to go on to seminary, right? No, to go on to medical school. Oh, this was before. Okay, so you were yes, still taking the MCAT. You were ready to go on, and 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 he kind of the Lord closed the door. This is one of the ways he closed the door, I guess, right? Yes, it's exactly what happened. It's exactly how he closed the door, and so I I reasoned that well, you know, there's there's importance to saving people's physical lives, but I would want to be more interested now in, in being involved in saving people's spiritual lives. Mm. And so I just studied. I didn't really intend to become a pastor or anything necessarily. I went to Tyndale Theological Seminary and just studying in the early years of our marriage. You know, for five years, that's what I did every evening and every Saturday mm. <laughs> before we had kids is just study and take the courses. And, and uh, then, you know, an opportunity came up in Fredericksburg texas for a pastorate and you know after six months of going through all the the process there candidacy you know they called me to be the pastor which was really interesting and you know obviously i was young i was just 30 years old at the time and well i mean but i never thought twice about it because i love the lord and i love the word and i saw, i figured if i just teach the word everything will be okay i don't need to worry about what anybody thinks just teach the word and everything mm -hmm. will be fine and it was i was there for 16 years <laughs> and the church went great there's never any problems and now we moved up to spokane we've been here over four years again no problems just teach the word just mm -hmm. stick to the text right yeah so here we are and here you are and so you have how many kids I have five. We have five kids, my wife and I. Okay. And their age age range? Nineteen is the oldest, and the youngest is uh, 12. Okay. Well, praise It's pretty God. compact. We've got a couple twins, Jacob and Esau. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke for now. I was going to say, did you really name them <laughs> Jacob and Esau? <laughs> that would be something. Uh, <laughs> although I Poor do have Esau. Yeah, I do have a friend uh, who named his son Nebuchadnezzar. So there you go. It's not a okay. possibility. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll come back to Jacob and Esau, not your children, but <laughs> Jacob and Esau of Scripture when we talk about Israel in a moment. But uh, but five kids, nineteen to twelve. So your kids are younger than ours. I've had the chance to meet them. We've uh, been privileged to speak up at Spokane Bible Church, and uh, really one of our happiest. Uh, Memories, you know, if you've traveled as much as we have over the years, over 20 years of pretty extensive uh, travel, um, you know, you, you get you just turn to you get to to learn about the personalities of churches and conferences, and you find yourself as you're driving away after the conference, uh, you know, talking Wendy and I talking, and even sometimes the kids, and just 
And and that one was one that was really special to us. You guys made us feel so welcome. There was great response. Um, uh, there was some spiritual warfare. I remember we had a, a medical emergency in the middle of one of the services. Um, and uh, I was teaching, I don't even remember, I think I was teaching on Spirit of the Antichrist at that time. It was before the False Prophet book came out. Um, and so anyway, yeah, great time. It was a great time. We have a lot of mutual uh, friends. And so... Uh, Obviously, I think I know the answer to this because you, in your journey, you mentioned being influenced by the teaching of, of Charlie Clough. But uh, as you kind of clarified, you know, your own spiritual walk, kind of came back to the Lord. As you said, you were saved as a young boy, but you got away from the Lord a little bit. And it was uh, through, uh, you know, your, your wife and uh, other series of events that you kind of really got serious in your walk with the Lord. But at what point do you remember, if if you can pinpoint a time, really becoming passionate about the clarity and accuracy of the gospel? Oh, yeah, for sure. That that happened when I was in seminary and I became apprised of John MacArthur, Zane Hodges, and, of course, Charles Ryrie. And so what I did was I just took the three books that those guys wrote that were somewhat, I guess, instrumental in the whole modern controversy and read them. You know, I read Absolutely Free by Zane Hodges. I read So Great Salvation by Charles Rowery. And I read, you know, The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. And I got through as much of that last book as I possibly could <laughs> uh, because it was difficult to, to read. I, I, uh, I enjoyed a lot of what Zane wrote, but I had a lot of questions and I appreciated a lot of what Charles Rowery wrote. But I really struggled a lot with the exegesis and John MacArthur. So I got into researching his background and listening to him some to see how he's coming across to an audience and the kind of perfectionist notions that he's presenting that believers have to live up to. And I mean, I, I guess, you know, it was at the time, this is probably 2000, right around 2000. So I mean, as well into this whole dispute that was modern dispute that's taking place on this issue. I just realized that, you know, he's front-loading the gospel, he's back-loading the gospel. I mean, it's not the gospel. Mm. And, of course, he's influencing people around the world. He has a very huge impact, and so it really, I guess, ignited me to, like, read more and study more. I got really into GES guys like, uh, you know, Wilkin and others who are FGA guys, more like Joe, Joseph Dillo and stuff like that. Just reading all these guys and reading the disputes back and forth and going into the issues about the overcomers and inheritance and our darkness, you know, and all this. And and But, you know, the most important thing I found in the whole thing was while that was all happening in my life, just studying and reading about it, was spending time in the text, in the original text. I mean, I wrote out, you know, what the way I would study is I'd write out every single verse in Greek. I'd go through every single word and put, you know, this is a present active participle, or this is an article, or this is a demonstrative pronoun, or whatever. And this was just for the for over 10 years, I did this for every book of the Bible that I taught. I look back at my notes now, I did, you know, word studies on all the important words, how many times it's used in the, in the Greek Septuagint, how many times it's used in the Greek New Testament. <laughs> you know, English definitions for the words so help me communicate to people. And that's what really helped me, I guess, come to my position on grace, which is what I would call a very central classical free grace position. Um, and it, it wasn't reading all the arguments, so to say. It was getting convinced by the text 
and even seeing a lot of texts that people don't mention in the arguments that I think have bearing on the issues. But, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, is that it just makes me cringe when I see someone present a, a gospel that's not the gospel because it puts some type of requirement on the unbeliever that is other than just faith. You know, yeah. It's a non-meritorious faith. And, and you are putting, you know, quite obviously, in many cases, a requirement of works on the person. And it's no longer a free gift anymore. Right. It's something we have to do. And it's very frustrating because, you know, Satan is sowing seeds of opposition to the gospel all the time. And so I think we have to fight against that by preaching a free, free and clear gospel and showing why works can't be brought into the equation. Yeah, on the front end or the back end. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was about uh, only 10 years or so ahead of you in my journey, but it's fascinating uh, how similar our uh, stories are. And uh, it's been quite a while, I think, since I've shared this with our listeners. So I'll just give the thumbnail sketch. But like you, I was raised in a Baptist church, uh, saved as a young at a young age. And then uh, it what introduced me to the fact that there's even an issue about the clarity of the gospel and that not everybody's preaching the same gospel they articulate it differently and in most cases they bring works into the discussion either as a requirement flat out or as a necessary obligatory you know result uh and I got introduced to it through the same three books you know um and what happened was I like you was headed off to seminary. I had graduated from college. I was very young. I was the youngest guy at Dallas Seminary when I started, 22 years old. And um, when I told some friends that I was going to Dallas Seminary, one of them, he wasn't so much a friend as he was an acquaintance, uh, but uh, he said, oh, you don't want to go there. They they teach this, you know, cheap grace stuff is what he called it, you know. And he said, you need to read this book by John MacArthur, the one you referenced. And folks, by the way, I know we have a broad audience and not everybody, uh, you know, this is a couple of academicians talking here about some of the finer points of the gospel, which of course is what, you know, both of us are passionate about. You know, not by works is very passionate about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. But if you've, uh, if you've, you know, been a fan of MacArthur's or you're a disciple of MacArthur, please don't be offended at what we're saying. We encourage you to check out the, the clear statements that he makes according to scripture and just run it through the grid of scripture. Don't just take our word for it. We're not trying to personally attack anyone, but I know Jeremy's written and talked about this forever. The first book I ever wrote, you know, 20 something years ago, Getting the Gospel Wrong is all about uh, a critique graciously of MacArthur's view, citing him in his own words and explaining uh, why his view is not an accurate understanding of the doctrine of grace. Uh, and we just did a podcast last month, by the way, in November, on getting the gospel wrong. And so plenty of resources out there for you to check out for yourself. But uh, this is just part of the storyline here that Jeremy mentioned and that I mentioned. So I'm reading MacArthur's 1989 book, Getting the Gospel, or uh, Gospel According to Jesus. And I had arrived at Dallas Seminary about a month before classes started because I got a job loading trucks in a warehouse and was just uh, trying to, you know, pay my way through school. And so I came home every evening and was one of the few guys already in the dorm. 
And I just read that book. And I got about halfway through it. And like you, I was really puzzled. It seemed like a lot of the arguments were contradictory. But I noticed that he kept referencing in his footnotes a guy named Zane Hodges, whom I had never heard of, even though my family has a long connection to Dallas Seminary. I just had never heard of the guy. So I went to the bookstore. Back then, they didn't have Amazon. You know, you just you went to the bookstore. And I bought Zane Hodges' book absolutely free. And I read it. And then that led me to Charles Ryrie's book, So Great Salvation. I later became friends with both Hodges and Ryrie. They're both with the Lord now. Uh, was much closer to Ryrie than Hodges, but had multiple interactions in person and dinners and lunches with Hodges. Um, by the way, Hodges is another guy I would be careful about because uh, later in his life, he kind of went off the reservation and was teaching some things that I believe contradict Scripture. But these are just the guys that influenced my thinking like they influenced uh, Jeremy's. And it was at that young age of 22 that the Lord just really convicted me that I need to get be clear in how I articulate the gospel. And in order to do that, I have to be able to say, what does the Bible explicitly say? And so like you, I did all the exegesis on terms like gospel and salvation and believe and faith. And uh, and, and that led me down this road that here, here I are 35 years later and just passionate about uh, the gospel 33 years later, I guess, 34. And uh, and it's a driving passion of all that we do, even though we talk a lot and write a lot recently about Bible prophecy, undergirding it all is our desire to see uh, people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So, so you have, like you, uh, we both have been involved in some of the grace-based ministries. Uh, I was involved early on in GES, very early on, and then uh, was one of the founding members of Free Grace Alliance, um, and the first executive director, and then ended up leaving there with several board members when that group kind of, you know, was just doing some things I wasn't comfortable with. There's some great guys that are still part of that organization. I interact with them regularly, share the platform with them. So I think folks should check it out for themselves if you want to be a part of uh, any of those type groups. But the, the common thread among them all, even though we may have disagreements on some issues, is this passion for making sure that we don't uh, confuse works and grace, and we don't bring works into the gospel. Uh, and as you say, there are so many people out there that say, oh, well, you're saved by faith, but then if you're not living right, if you're not producing good works, or if you start to produce any, quote, bad works, uh, then it proves you were never really saved to begin with. And and that's a real problem, biblically and logically. I just got back from in, in November from teaching a week-long course on soteriology for a mutual friend of ours, Brett Nasworth, at DM2. And we talked a lot about this uh, Calvinistic concept of perseverance of the saints, that believers have to persevere all the way to the end of their lives, and if they don't, they're going to hell. I mean, that's just... Uh, that's just patently, provably false according to Scripture. And yet so many people think that one of the biggest questions I get, and you probably would echo this, is when you know people come up to me at conferences or after church and they say, well, I'm worried about my son or my daughter or my grandson or my granddaughter because I know they trusted Christ at a young age, but now they're just completely turned their back on the Lord and they're living like the devil, and I just don't think they're really saved. And I say the same thing every time. Well, I, I don't know if they're saved or not, but I can tell you, the issue of their behavior today has no bearing on whether they're a Christian. The issue is, have they trusted Christ? And if they trusted Christ at some point in their journey as their only hope of eternal life, then their subsequent behavior cannot undo that. It cannot change that. 
It may not be good, and there are serious consequences for sin in the life of a believer, but behavior can never invalidate the promise of Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. So, so you go off to seminary. You mentioned how you got you pastor for 16 years down in Texas, and then you're up in uh, Spokane. And uh, what else are you working on? What's your latest uh, book project? Well, you mentioned the Caroling Christmas, so yep. I'll, I'll mention that. That's the the book that uh, we've got a lot of contributors to. People that know people like uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Robert Dean, maybe you know Dane Rogers, Clay Ward, Brad Masson, Tom Stegall. So there's a lot of guys on here, David Rosen, who have contributed to that book. I I, I read through the book really quick, and I thought this is really helpful, especially this time of year, of course because it doesn't lay out the whole story, you know, the birth story prophetically and in, in the narrative, like a sequence or anything like that. But, but what it does is it, it is you get all the pieces of the story, so you get enmeshed in the story. And, and that's something that we want to do this time of year because it's Christmas and you can get carried away by the consumerism and materialism or whatever. Um, and so I think, and of course, we all love the carols. I mean, I, I do, at least. I call them hymns. But yeah. um these hymns are some of the most rich hymns doctrinally that, that we have in our hymnals. And I think it's so important, of course, I hold to an idea of sacred music. So this is the idea of just set apart music that is distinct from our culture. And it's, it's rich and it contains and is appropriate for doctrinal uh, themes. And there's just so much in this book. I mean, who doesn't love to sing, you know, God rest you married gentlemen and, you know, uh, I was just looking at that one. That's uh, you know, <laughs> Jacob Eaton, I think, right? That's who I can't remember. It's I read it this morning again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is there. It is. Yeah, and I know Jacob. He, he works with our friend uh, Brad Maston, or did? Is he on his own now? I think. Or uh, anyway, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. He's not. what he he said. It's God. Uh, God make ye mighty men was like a, a possible original translation or huh. intention of the author. Huh. So, you know, a lot of interesting stuff as you read through, because these guys are typically, who wrote these are not like music people. Brad is, Brad Maston is. But most of them are not, and I think we're just doing what we usually do is research and look at who who did this hymn, why they wrote it, and, and its basis in Scripture. And, you know, I did Joy to the World, because I think I was the first one to choose one. I wrote right back when they asked me, I said, I want Joy to the World if Amen. nobody's got it. <laughs> you know, because I just, I, you know, I think Isaac Watts, this ties into my dispensationalism stuff. The guy was a dispensationalist. And yet, you know, everybody sings this hymn at Christmas, and yet it's based on Psalm 98. It's an enthronement psalm. It's talking about the Messianic kingdom. Yes. So I, I uh, you know, I have a passion for, for uh, people understanding that, you know, there's still an earthly millennial kingdom to come. And even when we sing Joy to the World, you know, I think some people spiritualize that, and that's probably why we sing it today. Because yeah, they th they're thinking of the kingdom now, you know. Exactly. They're trying to, to, to you know, imagine world peace or think world peace or, you know, usher it in by just nostalgically thinking about what it's like. But when we understand Joy to the World, which is one of my favorites as well, you know, joy, kara in Greek is one of the key themes, and especially in Luke's writing of the future kingdom. But when we understand that this is speaking of the future kingdom, when the Prince of Peace comes back, you know, it's speaking to the second half of that 
Christmas prophecy from Isaiah 9 that we all quote at Christmas, but we don't realize that half of that hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's not going to be fulfilled till the second coming. So good for you. Yeah, that's a great, uh, I'll have to read that one, but that's, uh, I'm right there with you. It's an enthronement song. It's a second coming uh, enthronement psalm, so I'm not even a second coming song, the the, the uh, carol joy to the world, let earth receive her king. If they didn't receive their king in Bethlehem, they will receive their king on the Mount of Olives when they cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Psalm 118.26. Yeah. Yep. I've just talked a lot about that. We, we just did some recent uh, messages, and this will be a good segue into the next thing I want to talk with you about, since you mentioned Isaac Watts and his dispensational framework. Uh, we've talked a lot at Plum Creek Chapel, my home church recently, about Israel, about dispensationalism, and I know you teach uh, dispensational premillennialism at the seminary in an academic setting. Uh, I know you have, you teach Israelology, um, the study of Israel and, and God's plan for Israel. Um, so talk to us a little bit about uh, the role of Israel uh, in Bible prophecy, and then you can segue from that right into what's going on in Israel today. Everybody wants to know. It's front and center of the newspaper every day. Well, I mean, the role of, of Israel in Bible prophecy, I, mean, I think most of the Old Testament is about Israel, 98% yeah. <laughs> uh, of it, you know, Genesis 12 to the end. So uh, there's so much about Israel and Bible prophecy, and we are living in very unique times because since 1948, we have something unique. You know, we have a state of Israel that's actually on all the maps except for those who are you know, Arab world. <laughs> so, you know, they won't recognize the state of Israel, but it's it's a reality that we are watching. 67, the Jerusalem becoming under coming under the control of, of Israel. Um, and then of course the Intifada. You you for, from you know an Arab's perspective, this is continual war since nineteen forty eight. You know, that was the in their minds Nakba, right? The day of catastrophe. When Allah, you know, was you know, his name was just, you know, drugged through the mud on that day. And they're, they're on a political, religious quest to restore his name. And, you know, I find it interesting. I've listened to testimonies of uh, ex-Muslims for Christ who are at Oxford and other places in Europe who will say things like, there's no way that uh, Allah can possibly exist just on the basis of, that five wars against Israel and the Arabs lost every single war. <laughs> uh, so they recognize, you know, that there's a God in Israel. You know, he's the one, he's got to be the one true God because it's just impossible that this tiny sliver of a nation <laughs> with a, you know, a very small population and small armies relative to all these other Arab nations could ever possibly win. And yet every single time they, they win. In modern Israel, yeah, and what's what's fascinating about that, you know, bringing back going back to Jacob and Esau, uh, you know, that's been the true from the beginning is that people and the enemies of Israel have time and again come against them, but there's something uh, special about it. They they will not ultimately win, and it was God's plan all along, as you read th through the history of Israel in the biblical text, for them to go into the promised land, set up camp, and draw the pagan nations with all of their idolatry to Yahweh, the one true God, to, to witness to the unity of God and the blessings of God and, and God's amazing grace. And yet, 
Uh, of course, Israel failed time and again because they of their disobedience, their lack of faith, and so forth. And so through prophets, priests, kings, judges, you name it, it ultimately led to uh, the supreme event of all mankind when, as I just talked about in my study of uh, Romans 9 through 11 recently at Plum Creek Chapel, um, the Jews crowned Jesus with thorns, and he paid to sin debt for the sins of the whole world. But Paul makes it clear that does not mean that God is going to abandon his his plan for Israel. And so, um, you know, you'd think by now the enemies of Israel would recognize that, uh, as, uh, you know, they should, that God's hand of blessing is on Israel. He promised Abraham that, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Yet they don't get it, and that's because it's a satanic battle at its core. Satan is a self-deceived enemy of God. He thinks he can win the battle. He sought a coup in heaven, and that coup attempt failed, and he's been bloodthirsty ever since trying to defeat God and his eternal son, our Savior Jesus Christ. So so as you as you think about Israel historically, how do you see things playing out in the in our day? I mean, do you feel like this latest attack, which by the way is you know by far the most horrific attack in terms of the numbers of anything modern Israel has ever experienced. I think I've said this before on the air, but, you know, if you had a, a per capita extrapolated the number of dead, what, 13, 14, 1500 in Israel to America, you'd be talking about a terrorist attack that killed 30 to 40,000 people. So when people act like, oh, you know, Israel, they're overreacting. <laughs> I mean, we killed 1 million Iraqis because of 3,000 people that died on 9-11, you know, after that terrorist attack. So I guarantee you, if we had had 30 to 40,000 people die, we would be doing the same thing. So it's hypocritical. But do you feel like this battle that is now uh, raging between Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, all the different players that are weighing in and, and coming in, do you think it's the beginning of setting the stage for end times prophecy or do you think it's going to simmer down like some have in the past and and we'll get back to some sense of normalcy well usually these things with israel come in waves that's how i kind of seen their cycles you know we saw what happened in 2001 when ario sharon went on the temple mountain yeah and we saw in 2008 hamas you know again and now we're seeing it's been 16 years or something like that and since there's been something big and now this has happened at first i wasn't sure i'm, I'm a little reticent because i'm not very you know i don't get into sensational sensationalism with prophecy and like thinking that everything is fulfillment of prophecy or something like that yeah. but what what happened was i was listening i listen every day and get updates every single day Sometimes I fall asleep, but because <laughs> it's like 6 a.m. But usually I go back and listen and catch up and read Jensa and other things to get up on the military reports. But what is unique about this particular war, which, again, like you said, this is the 9-11 for Israel. It's bigger yeah. than our 9-11 per capita yeah. Yeah. population base. Um, so it's really a huge thing. But what's unique is when I listen to the Minister of Defense say that Israel could no longer tolerate to live with terrorists and all its borders. Mm -hmm. And that that's significant because in Ezekiel 38, 8, it talks about Israel living in security. In Ezekiel 38, 11, you know, having, living in basically unwalled villages and a time of them being restored after the sword. 
And, you know, in other words, Israel at some point in Bible prophecy has to come into a condition when they're living in security. Mm -hmm. I mean, my interpretation of, of how that security ultimately comes about is that you have this guy in Daniel 9.27, who's all called the Antichrist, who comes and makes a treaty with Israel for seven years and, you know, to protect Israel. Um, but what is, so what is so shocking about this recent event is that they had no idea this attack was going to happen. I mean, we're talking about Israeli intelligence. We're talking about that they live right next door to these people. <laughs> it's the Gaza Strip. It's been there for thousands of years since the Philistines. And it's not difficult, you would think, for Israeli intelligence and Mossad to know what's going on. And they had been planning this for over two years. So when Israel recognized the vulnerability of their security, I think they realized that we can't tolerate living right around, you know, Hezbollah, a proxy army of Iran, Fatah in the West Bank and in Jordan, Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, you know, and Hamas and, and other, of course, smaller organizations uh, in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere. And yet, you know, they're facing, <laughs> I mean, how do you get them off your borders? See, they've already vowed that they're going to destroy all the Hamas operatives. There's 29,000 Hamas operatives. Up to this point, they've only killed 4,000. And they vowed to kill then the other 25,000. Uh, what is the world going to think about that? I mean, we're already getting a taste of what the world thinks. Uh, even from our own administration, you know, wanting to force ceasefires and, and try to, you know, get the hostages out or whatever. But Israel, if, if, I mean, all you have to do is listen to Hamas narrative. Hamas narrative will tell you over and over and over, if we could do this again, we'd do it tomorrow. Yeah. If we could do it again, we'd do it the next day and the next day and the next day. And we will never stop because we want to exterminate Israel. It's it's very clear. All you have to do is listen to what they say. Yeah, they and, say, and they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, just like, uh, you know, the cry of Israel is never again. The cry of Hamas is never stop. I mean, that that's that's and it's not going to stop until the king of kings comes back. Even the relative peace that Israel experiences in the first half of the tribulation, when the Antichrist and false prophet, whom I've written a great deal about in my latest three books, when they're ruling the world in, in utter satanic tyranny, even that only, that peace only lasts for three and a half years, and then the Antichrist breaks the treaty and turns his vicious empire uh, and all of the technological components of it against uh, Israel. So, a couple of things I just want to throw in there, because I know our listeners have heard me talk about this in, in many contexts, both as guests on other shows and then with guests that I've had on. So, um, you know, it was a surprise attack, but that doesn't preclude there from having been a prior knowledge from certain rogue elements within the government. And, and saying that doesn't make me anti-Semitic any more than acknowledging what the government now admits in America, that, for example, the Gulf of Tonkin incident in Vietnam was a complete fabrication and false flag. That doesn't make me un-American to say that. It just makes me right. I mean, these are facts not in dispute in, in the case of historical events. So all I'm saying is that we don't know. And I've asked a lot of experts, including people that are in Mossad that have that have literally are on a you know direct connection to uh, Netanyahu, uh, talking to him almost daily. People like that, and and they you know we don't know. All I'm saying is it's very plausible that in order to pull off such a, a stunning military feat, that there might have been some type of inside knowledge not necessarily everybody but if we can't nuance that and understand that secular israel just like secular america 
has some rogue elements that are under the control of the Luciferians who are really pulling the strings globally, which is right out of scripture, then I don't know, you know, that that's not helpful. It's not helpful for people to blindly, you know, say that Israel can do no wrong and American can do no wrong and so forth. But make no mistake, however it happened, and again, we don't know, it could have been just a colossal failure of intelligence, even though we've been told as you sort of, you know, described, you know, the IDF and the military intelligence of Israel are, are second to none, literally, on earth. And, I mean, that, that certainly that region at the Gaza Strip is under the highest surveillance that anyone can ever imagine. And, you know, they brag that if a cockroach crosses the border at Gaza, the IDF knows how long its antenna are. So, and yet, you know, here these people kind of rode in on paragliders and, you know, shocked the world. So, could have been, certainly could have been, as you said, either way, it seems to be preparing, paving the way for what we read about in Ezekiel 38 of Israel finally and completely vanquishing their foes. Uh, and we know the ultimate victory of the battle of Gog and Magog comes supernaturally at the hands of God, but this could be uh, setting the stage for that. By the way, another interesting a factoid here doesn't prove anything at all, but it's just when you understand the Luciferian conspiracy uh, and, and realize kind of how it is involved in geopolitics, we know that one of the credos of uh, the Satanists is they have to kind of a, give advance notice of what they're planning, and it's usually in some type of subtle, uh, secret, coded typically a Hollywood movie or TV show or sometimes magazines and things, but they just sort of allude to it. You never know it at the time, but you look back in retrospect and you go, ah, now this makes sense. I see what they were trying to tell us. And it's just a, a satanic credo, widely known, widely documented. They they sit around in smoke-filled rooms and laugh about all the devastation and bloodshed and evil that they're perpetrating because they go, hey, we warned them, which of course they really didn't, but they, they give advance notice. And I give several examples of that in my Spirit of the Antichrist books, but I just found it quite shocking, honestly, uh, when I discovered a 2013 cover issue of The Economist magazine. It was the December 2012, January 2013 issue. It comes out six times a year, I believe. And on the cover of it, here you've got paragliders riding, you know, flying into, you know, Israel and bombs exploding. Well, that's probably a coincidence. I mean, certainly it's by no means empirical evidence. But when you understand that satanic credo and you see all the other examples of this uh, in the past, it sort of kind of gets my attention and goes, yeah. And by the way, you mentioned two years. I've heard some uh, military experts and some evidences that they knew for six years this was coming. Not, I don't mean Israel knew, but uh, what I meant to say was there's evidence that this was planned for six years. We don't know whether anybody within the Israeli government knew about this and allowed it to, to happen or conspired with the enemy. But we know human nature, we know history, we know the whole concept of false flags and stand-down orders, and it certainly is very plausible that there was an, you know, an insider that, that conspired with the enemy. It wouldn't be the first time. Read the Bible, read the Old Testament. we got all kinds of examples of Israeli kings conspiring with the enemy. So I just, I get a little animated about it because when I've tried to say that in a very balanced, objective way, the, the minute you even go down that road, I get emails saying, well, obviously you're a Hamas terrorist, Hickson, and you hate Israel. Well, I'm not. I'm not I promise you I'm not. Uh, and again, I don't have any irrefutable proof of this. But at the end of the day, what matters is that Israel has come under attack. 
And appropriately so, they're trying to do everything they can to vanquish their enemies, not just Hamas, but all the ones that, that you mentioned. So, so you're saying, and I agree with you, you know, we're not trying to be sensationalist here, but could this be the setting of the stage for what ultimately leads us into the actual fulfillment of prophecies after the rapture? Yeah, I think I think more than any other events. I mean, there was a big deal about Iran, you know, and all this in the in two thousand eight, and so, and you know, people writing books and all that. But I think this is more significant because when you look, for example, at the stage being set for Ezekiel thirty eight, those those countries that are involved are not sitting on the borders of Israel; they're further away. Mm-hmm. And yet what we're seeing now is something right on the border. So if you bring somebody in like the Antichrist to secure the region for a period of time, and then those nations that are further away come in and you know strike, that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. But you'd have to bring somebody in who can actually control you know the various terrorist organizations that are right there around israel on their doorstep that's what you need (laughs) yeah i think you do and you know uh, there are a lot of experts who i've come to really respect because of their love for the lord and their commitment to expositional argumentation they're not sensationalists they're not out there looking at the newspaper making wild predictions or mishandling the scripture and talking about shemitahs and blood moons and those types of things they're actually citing chapter and verse and connecting dots and i've so i've really grown to respect guys like bill salas for example uh, lately and uh he makes a pretty strong argument that yeah this is the inner circle around israel that's going to be taken care of and then that makes way for the outer circle, the nations that we read about in Ezekiel 38. Uh, definitely could be, it's, I think so much of Bible prophecy disagreements would be uh, better served if we all used phrases like could be rather than will be. Uh, and, you know, we speak with less dogmatism. I mean, we know what's going to happen. We know the order of events, uh, you know, rapture, you know, unveiling of the Antichrist, peace treaty, seal trumpet and bold judgment, abomination of desolation, two witnesses, Armageddon, second coming, millennial reign, on and on. We know the big picture. But when we start to piece together some of the details, a lot of that, we, we kind of feel like Daniel, who, who said, look, I don't understand all of this now, but someday I will. So it's an exciting time to be alive, right? Oh, I, th- I, think, it's the, I think it's the best time. To be alive. I mean, you, you read the New Testament epistles, you know, and you can tell in several places that Paul couldn't have written the way that he wrote without having an expectation of the rapture. But of course, now here we are 2000 years later for most of those 2000 years, there's not even an Israel in the land. <laughs> and now they've been returned. And so, it, you know, I think Dr. Walver used to say, when asked questions about, hey, do you think that, you know, this is close to the end? And and people would kind of say, well, they could be kicked out of the land again and then come back and all, all these other scenarios. I think Dr. Walbert said something like, usually when God starts to move in a direction, he doesn't stop. Right. He doesn't pull back. And and I, I think that's correct. I don't really see their, you know, you know, Israel move going outside the land and another return to the land or another state of Israel later in, in history. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, God has taken steps, and these steps look definitive, and he looks like he wants them to stay there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I had Walbert at Dallas Seminary, and uh, I know you've probably sat under his teaching in various conferences and other places as well. Um, in fact, did he ever guest lecture at Tyndale or no? 
he did once, I, and I want I want a book. Like he has a, his commentary on Matthew. And I oh, I love it! <laughs> Behold the King, I think it's called, isn't it, or something like that? It's yeah. uh, like one of the that yeah. Oh, that might be too safe. Uh, yeah, sorry. that is too safe. I think it's kingdom come. I think thy kingdom come or something. Like yeah, that. well, that's Pentecost. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, there all those guys are. No, great, you no, know? no, it is thy kingdom come. Oh, sure enough. Yes. Yeah. yeah, there you yeah. go. There you go. I've got it. It's behind my green screen here, so I can't look at it as easily <laughs> as you. But, but yeah, you know, uh, talking about the return of Israel in 1948 in unbelief, um, what's your take? A lot of people try to cite Isaiah 11.11 as indicating that that was the fulfillment of prophecy and that the second coming of Christ and the regathering in belief will be the the second time. What's your take on that? Well, I do see there uh, two two regatherings prophesied, one in unbelief, one in belief. But I see the uh, first prophecy as one that transpires over time. You know, Jews started returning to the land in the eight, in the mid to late eighteen hundreds. There were already Jews there, but but they started returning, especially with the Russian pogroms. And you've got Theodore Herzl and the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland. And you've got this whole desire for a Jewish homeland and people returning. So I see the the regathering in unbelief as a process of fulfillment prophecy. Yeah, I mean, and it's you, still taking place today. You'd be in good company. I know Andy Woods, I think, I don't know if he takes Isaiah 11, 11 that way, but he certainly understands Ezekiel 37 that way. And, and others, it's not an uncommon view. Uh, as is often the case, I tend to take a little bit more of a minority view. I think when Isaiah is talking about how the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, I think the first return was under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And in the context, what he's talking about is there's going to be a great end times regathering in belief. And you know, the, the, the modern-day return of many Jews to the land, which, as you said, started with the modern Zionist movement and uh, the World Zionist Congress in the late 19th century, in my mind, doesn't fulfill that biblical prediction uh, because it's not going to happen, as Isaiah goes on to explain, until Messiah comes and rules the earth. So I don't see the reference to a second return as implying a first sort of end times or latter days return i see it as referring to there was an initial return after captivity in unbelief and they've essentially been in, in the land in unbelief all the way through the first century jesus certainly rebuked them for their lack of belief and told the that the first century jewish nation that he would that those leaders that he was going to take the kingdom from them and give it to a future jewish leaders that are worthy of it and and he says you'll not see me again till you cry hosanna hosanna so i just i don't i think i think i like the way you said it you know clearly the return in 1948 is probably not they're not going anywhere again it's this is it once god starts to move he's moving i think it's prophetically significant but I wouldn't point to chapter and verse such as Isaiah eleven eleven to say that fulfills this, and and uh, and I know you wouldn't either. You're saying, hey, it's a gradual process. But whether a lot of it's semantics, whether we call it the fulfillment of an explicit prophecy or just the movement of the hand of God and setting the stage, like Jesus told us to watch the signs of the times. There's no question that we are living in an exciting time when Israel is now front and center. Uh, and we long for the day when uh, they cry out in belief and they are delivered into the kingdom when the deliverer comes out of Zion, right? 
Yeah, I'd see. See, I'd see uh, Isaiah eleven this exact same way you would. What I would look to for like a two-stage type of fulfillment would be something like Ezekiel 37, the dry bones. Right. And view it as a two-stage, but not definitively on like a date, like, you know, in 1948 when they declared themselves to be a state. I mean, that was a significant year. I mean, up to that point, due to the white paper limiting, you know, Israeli return to the land prior to 1948, you had about 600,000 Jews in the land. Right. And they declared themselves to be a state. Within the next year, they had another six hundred thousand people, you know, return. So it's significant, right, for volume of people returning. Uh, but it's not like, in my thinking, like a definitive this this date, you know, fulfilled a specific prophecy that we can cite. And and obviously, as you say, it's very significant in the grand scheme of things yes. yeah. of what's transpiring. Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, by the time Christ comes back and splits the eastern sky and regathers, as he says in Matthew 24, 31, which, of course, is the fulfillment of just about every prophecy in the, every prophet, rather, in the Old Testament, refers to a, a end times regathering of Israel when they are finally brought back into the land and belief. So that's the fulfillment of it in Matthew 24, 31. But when that happens, what's going to be interesting is by that time, any believing remnant of the Jewish people that were in and around Jerusalem probably would have fled. I mean, they might be hiding out in the, in some caves, but by the time of the abomination of desolation at the midpoint, you know, Jesus says head for the hills, you, you know, and they're going to have to, to, to kind of avoid the, uh, the martyrdom that the antichrist is, is trying to accomplish. So I don't know how many will actually be in the land at that point, even though you're right, as we see both historically and biblically, many have already begun to return, and some of them in belief, some of them in unbelief. But what's fascinating is that when Jesus comes back, supernaturally in an instant, he's going to send his angels to regather them. So the setting of the stage that we see now, the 600,000 and 600,000 more, the this great migration of God's people, ethnically Jews, back to the land, uh, even though many of them are not believers, I'd say the vast majority of them are not believers. They are, they've not accepted Christ as the Messiah and the Savior. Uh, it, that's a geographic migration. That's a physical migration coming back. The fulfillment of the, the end times regathering is going to be supernatural. Jesus is going to physically pick up with his angels these people, transport them from all over the earth, and deposit them back in the land, and then the kingdom will begin. So does that make sense? Do you agree with that? Am I scared? Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, I, absolutely. Even during that, like you said, at the midpoint, the abomination of desolation, that's like an indication, hey, get out of here. So <laughs> at least those who are believing, you know, and you can see some things at the seventh trumpet there in Revelation 11, and some events in Jerusalem that would also go along with the abomination of desolation. It's like, hey, I think a lot of people believe at that point and get out of there. You've got to have already had the ministry of the two witnesses, most likely in the first half. And, you know, the 144,000, you know, spread out among the nations. So there's a lot going on in Israel. A lot of people probably believing by the midpoint. I, I see him as like getting out of there. You know, a lot of people think they'll go to Petra, you know, which is the Old Testament yeah. Basra, the sheep pen, you know, a place where they can be secure and safe from the Antichrist tentacles and his armies. He wants to destroy them. I mean, this is the whole this is the whole thing, right? Revelation uh, 12 and 13, you've got you've got Satan and his whole plan to destroy every last living Israelite on the planet. Yeah. And so, um, of course, God raises up Michael, the archangel, to protect them and help them in this hour uh, to preserve them. God will supernaturally protect them, of course. 
And so he won't wipe them all out because there have to be Jews who say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to issue in the, the second advent. Yeah. And he said, Jesus said, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Matthew 23, 39. So they will have said that by Matthew 24, 31, right? And he will return. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like Luke 17 says, it's as the lightning you know, strikes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be just like a moment. It's just instant. Yeah. No, like, oh, we see him coming, you know, look over here or go over there. You'll see him. No, it's it's just boom, and he's coming. And, and no, it's a no-doubter, you know. Yeah. It's it's a no-doubter, like a Jose Altuve home run half the time. You know, it's just, it's going to happen, brother. And uh, you won't have to wonder. If you have to ask the question, was that Christ that just came back? It wasn't, you know. <laughs> you won't have to ask the question. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, it has been such a delight to talk with you. I feel like we're just kind of sitting over a cup of coffee and just enjoying some iron sharpens iron time. Um, again, the new book, uh, if you're interested, go to Amazon.com, Caroling to Christmas. The editor is Bradley Aston and Dane Rogers, but uh, Jeremy Thomas, our guest today, and several other top Bible scholars, and, and many of them good friends of mine, have contributed to this great devotional book. Be a great book to put with your Christmas stuff, and every year at Christmas, uh, you put it out, put it on your coffee table, uh, get two or three copies, give them away as gifts or stocking stuffers, and it's just a great way to draw our hearts to the Lord and to really understand God's amazing grace. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you're ever in the Pacific Northwest or in the eastern side of the uh, Cascades, uh, it's Cascades up there, right? Is that the uh, Yeah, well, the Cascades on the west side, and then we've got the, we're in the foothills of the Rockies. Well, yeah, well, you, I guess side. you are, yeah, the whole, the Rockies go all the way up to Canada, obviously. Yeah. But uh, I just remember for the many times I've traveled from Coeur d'Alene or Spokane all the way east or west to the shore to like Seattle, and you do have to cross the Cascades. So it kind of it's yes. the dividing line. You got the progressives and the liberals on one side, and <laughs> the conservatives on the other. So we need we need more Cascade mountain ranges, if you ask me. Uh, but oh, yeah. if, if you're ever up that way, stop in and see uh, Jeremy at Spokane Bible Church. Is there a website you want to give out? Uh, well, yeah, you can just look up Spokane Bible Church. We're on, also on YouTube. We're on Rumble. I've got also uh, my Beyond the Walls ministry, okay, which has just started up. BeyondTheWallsMinistry.com, and there's blog there, and you can you know look at the books and things like that. And there's audio, it, it mostly just links to these things for now. But yeah, yeah all the stuff is out there. BeyondTheWalls.com and Spokane Bible Church. Uh, is that dot org or dot com? It's dot com. So everything I try to do everything dot com because you already got dot org. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, myworks <laughs> dot org. Well, yeah, thank you so it's, much. It's, uh, it's beyond the walls dash ministry dot com. Okay, beyondthewalls-ministry.com. Uh, well, awesome. Thanks so much, uh, Jeremy. We'll love, we'd love to have you back on again. Um, if I don't talk to you before Christmas, have a wonderful uh, Christmas. Thanks for all you're doing to promote the pure and simple gospel of grace. And uh, I, we've talked about the gospel a lot early on in today's program, but if you're listening to this program and you're not certain you're going to spend eternity in heaven, let me implore you, today's the day of salvation. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son, uh, who took your penalty on the cross, paid your sin debt, rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offers to all the free gift of eternal life. If you'll simply trust him for it, there's nobody else that you can get it from. Uh, no way you can earn it. No way you can be good enough. It's simply a free gift that has to be received by faith. So God bless you, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we will talk again soon.